Yeah. Okay. Okay, just uh, my, my name is Jakob Berkowitz. Um, I have the merit of working here at the St. Louis Kola as Director of Programming. Just by way of a very brief introduction to Rabbi Becher's class in this series, um, I heard from a friend of mine years, uh, many, a number of years ago, um, I forget the source, but he said a beautiful thought from the Gemara somewhere or Medrash that says that the Jewish people are compared, it's comparing and contrasting the Jewish nation to other nations, and says that the Jewish nation is compared to the sheep. That the sheep has choose its cud, and the sheep has split hooves. And we chew our cud in the sense that we're busy with the past, learning from the past, but we're not living in the past. We have split hooves, which brings us further along in the future. And the idea is, is uh, pretty straightforward and simple, that we merge the two together, not forgetting the past, but not living only in the future. And with that, I think that just puts us into the mindset of who we are as a nation and getting ready from Cairo to Cambridge and beyond, Be'ezus Hashem, to learn about our past, to understand who we are and how great we are and how great we can become, to bring us closer and closer to the final speech in three weeks or in two weeks' time and the ultimate redemption with Mashiach speedily in our days. So thank you for joining us and Rabbi Okay, shall I I begin? Yeah, please. Okay, folks, uh, I'm going to go a little fast because we have about a thousand years to do in uh, what, uh, 45 45 minutes or 60 minutes, etc. And we have a lot of material. So I'm going to, in my awesome generosity, I'll be sharing my screen with you. There you go. Um, And uh, Cairo, Cairo to Cambridge is the subject here. And the treasures of the Cairo Gnizan, I'll explain what they are. First of all, in Cairo, there was a large Jewish community for many, many years. Uh, uh, the most famous person to have lived there, as you probably know, was Maimonides. And there was a synagogue called the Ben Ezra Synagogue. There's a picture of it. It's been renovated by the Egyptian government. Um, and uh, it was built 822, destroyed 1012, rebuilt 1025. Now... According to, that's the, the view from the women's gallery inside the synagogue. It's a very beautiful uh, synagogue, um, and the renovation is, is very, very wonderful. Now, Maimonides tells us, and we know this from the Talmud, that you should not, um, you should not throw uh, out anything. Um, hold on. You, you're not allowed to throw out um, anything which is written with Torah on it. So, um, you know, you should, uh, that's, that's something which is, uh, uh, which is prohibited. So what happened is the Jews of Cairo would place their, um, hold on, why is that little window there? I can't seem to, okay. Can somebody put it on mute? Oh, you need to, we need to mute everyone. Hold on. Yes. Can you do that? Yeah, I can do that. Uh, mute all. Okay, there we go. Done. You're all muted now. Okay. So now um, the Jews of Cairo would take anything written in Hebrew or Aramaic or Hebrew letters, even, even if it wasn't in Hebrew, and they would place it in the, as you can see, in this, uh, uh, what we call a, an attic or a boydom. That was so that the holy scriptures should not be thrown out and things should be basically uh, preserved. 
And they'd been doing this since 1025. So we have approximately about a thousand years worth of stuff there. Now, what happened was a number of people did investigations of this. There was um, a fellow by the name of Yaakov Safir. Yaakov Safir wrote, um, after I had labored for two days, I was covered with dust. I found some old books, but I did not find any valuable information in them. Who knows what lies beneath? Prophetic words. Another rabbi, Solomon Aaron Wertheimer from Jerusalem, actually published some manuscripts from the Cairo Geniza. But the person who really brought the Cairo Geniza to the fore was Shlomo Zalman Schechter, otherwise known as Solomon Schechter. Solomon Schechter was an Eastern European Jew who grew up in a Hasidic background, actually Chabad background. And um, Rav, uh, uh, Solomon Schechter left uh, Eastern Europe, came to England and became a reader, a professor of Hebrew and Aramaic at Cambridge University. His religiosity unclear, but he was very devoted to Jewish learning. He was embroiled in a major argument with another Jew called David Margoliath from Oxford. And the argument was about a, a text called Ecclesiasticus, known as Ben Sirah, quoted in the Talmud. Margoliath, who had converted to Christianity, believed that the text was originally Christian, stolen by the Jews and put into Hebrew. Whereas Solomon Schechter believed it was originally written in Hebrew, stolen by the Christians and turned into Latin, uh, Greek. Now, the oldest manuscript of it at the time of their argument was in Greek. And so Solomon Schechter hated Margoliath. They hated each other for two reasons, three reasons. A, Cambridge versus Oxford, major rivalry. B, Solomon Sheikh, the traditional Jew, Margoliath is a, an apostate, converts to Christianity, and B and C because of their argument. Now, there were, enter these two ladies, the, they were sisters, Agnes Lewis and Margaret Gibson. Agnes Lewis and Margaret Gibson were people who, um, uh, they, were, they were historians and linguists. They were sisters and they actually lived in Cambridge and taught there. And they went on a trip to Egypt, to Cairo. And in Cairo, they came across some manuscripts from the Cairo Geniza. They brought one back as a present for Solomon Schechter. And Solomon Schechter reads this manuscript and he realizes it's the oldest Hebrew manuscript of that book that he was in argument about, the Ecclesiasticus or Ben Sirah. He was so excited. Here is the letter he wrote to Mrs. Lewis saying that they should meet later tonight. Don't tell anyone about this. This is a very exciting thing. And he realized a bulb went off in his head and he realized there's some valuable stuff in the Cairo Geniza. So immediately he is in contact with a friend of his in, um, uh, in Cambridge by, by the name of um, uh, a, a professor um, and um, a professor there had a lot of money. Solomon Schechter was as poor as a church mouse. Actually, that's not a good analogy, but he was poor. And um, he couldn't afford to go to Cairo. But this other professor at Cambridge financed the trip. So he goes to, he goes to Cairo. Here's a postcard that he wrote from Cairo complaining about the lack of good food, complaining about the lack of books, etc., etc., the heat, the dust. Anyway, he gets to Cairo. This was financed by Charles Taylor. And Charles Taylor 
um, was a wealthy person, a Protestant, a good friend of Solomon Schechter, a traditional Jew, and uh, they were good friends. So Schechter goes to um, uh, Cairo, and there he makes contact with the rabbi of the synagogue, who is more than happy to sell this crazy Englishman, to sell him the junk, the sacred trash from their attic. So he has hundreds of pounds of sterling. He buys it. The rabbi has some conditions. He wants Schechter to take him on a trip to the pyramids. He'd never been there. So he took him to the pyramids in Giza, right? He gave him some other presents and basically bought the entire content. And he brings it back to Cambridge. He had with him approximately 200,000 fragments of parchments. There you can see him in Solomon Schechter in the Cambridge University with the Geniza contents in the summer of 1897. He got very sick. He was in Egypt for close to a year, breathing in a thousand years worth of dust and mold from these manuscripts, uh, trying to read them. He brings them back to Cambridge. They put him in this room there. Um, they didn't have electric lights at that point. Uh, and here he is trying to discern what's there. And eventually, Cambridge University put some more money into this and they moved it to the Cambridge University Library, West Road, Cambridge. And there, there's now what they call the Taylor Schechter Geniza Research Unit at Cambridge University Library, which is mainly populated by scholars, academics, most of them not Jewish, who are fascinated by the contents of the Cairo Geniza. Um, and here you'll see, here is a piece of Tanakh, that's a, a, a Torah, Prophets and Writings, a book, but it's a piece of that book which is approximately a thousand years old. As you can see, right, the original, uh, the way it's preserved, you can't just open it up. It will fall apart, it will crumble. So there's extensive requirements for preservation. They take photographs, some of the photographs done with ultraviolet photography, some with regular photography. As you can see, what you can see with regular photography and ultraviolet is completely different. And you can see some fascinating stuff when you when you use ultraviolet photography. Now, they also have to do restoration, meaning you have to find, you have to put the pieces together like a jigsaw puzzle and figure out where everything goes. You have to figure out which handwriting matches other handwriting, which paper matches other paper and so on and so forth. They sometimes have to put micro dots of ink, uh, of, of glue behind the ink so that it stays on the page. It is, it's a, it's a painstaking work. Once they do the, process um, of restoration. There's the analysis and research. As you can see, they put things, there's a blue, color blue, which is a specifically um, designed color by physicists that brings out the best background for examining these manuscripts. Um, uh, and uh, there is someone analyzing the manuscripts. Um, there I am at the Cambridge University with Dr. Amir Ashur and a friend of mine from London, uh, Aubrey Hirsch, a historian. And um, I was there with another friend of mine, Akibatat, and looking at the manuscripts, there is my teacher, Rab Moshe Shapiro. Some of you may have heard of him, and uh, we arranged a visit for him to the uh, Geniza. There is Dr. Ben Althwaite, who is the, uh, the um, Hebrew-speaking, Aramaic-reading uh, Talmud expert who's not Jewish, who's head of the Geniza Research Unit in Cambridge University. And so now let's have a look at what stuff is there. Here is a section of the Tanakh. Um, and as you can see, it is written in 1213. We know this because at the end of it, there's what's called a colophon, the end piece. The colophon tells you who wrote it, when it was written, 
and where it was written. So this was written by Joseph ben Nimrod, uh, Nimored. It was written in Gubod Imalgin, which is a place in, in Iran, uh, what we call Iran today. Then it was, uh, yeah, it was Iran then. And finished in 1215. Now, something you can see, um, I'm pointing to the screen, you can't see. But, but if you look at the screen, you can see that the vowel sounds are all above the letters. That was common in Iraq and Iran, that all the vowels were placed above the letters in the Hebrew words. It didn't become standardized um, uh, until a little later than this, when the vowels took place in different parts of the words. But this is a classic, uh, that's a Tanakh 800 or so years old. Here is a letter from about 1000 CE, um, written by Rav Shmari ben Elchanan, who is uh, in the city of Kairouan, which is in Tunisia. And he's writing it to his nephew, who is in Cairo. Now, interesting here is this is a piece of evidence for a famous legend or story about four great rabbis from the great Talmudic academies in Iraq a thousand years ago. Um, Babylon, it was known as Babylon then. The great academies, they were cut, the heads of the academies known as Geonim. Four of them went with their families and they went, it was a lengthy fundraising trip. They were in, in, in Italy and from Italy, they left from a, um, um, from a port called Barry in Italy. I have a student at Yeshiva University who actually lives near there. And Barry was a famous town of Torah scholars. These rabbis left the port of Barry. They're in the Mediterranean. They are attacked by pirates, Arab pirates. The pirates capture these people and they realize these are not regular Jews. They can get much more from them with a ransom from Jewish communities than they can by selling them on the slave market. So they take them around the Jewish world. So one gets ransomed off in Kairouan, Tunisia. There's the letter from him. Another one in Cordoba in Spain. Another one, Narbonne in France. And another one in Alexandria in Egypt. And so what happened was the Torah now spreads around the shores of the Mediterranean from its center in Israel. It moved to Babylon. And now from Babylon, it moved around all the shores of the Mediterranean and this was because of that Arab pirate, whose intention, of course, was completely evil, but uh, God organized things that it worked out very well. And there's a letter from one of these rabbis to his nephew. Now, we have the only poem from a medieval Jewish woman ever, and her husband is very famous. You may have heard of the husband. His name Did you stop talking? Was Okay, lost the connection for a second. Everyone still everyone can still see me? Yes. Okay. Sorry, okay. So now Dunash ibn Labret was inspired by Rav Sajigan because the Arabs at the time were writing a lot of beautiful poetry 
and they were claiming that Arabic is the most beautiful language in the world. And, um, and so a lot of Jews took up the challenge to write poetry in Hebrew to challenge that assumption, to show the beauty of the Hebrew language. One of them was of Sa'adja Ga'on, who his first book when he wrote when he was 18 was a rhyming dictionary of Hebrew to help people write poetry. And Dunash, inspired by that, started to write poetry in Hebrew. And um, he was originally um, in um, Morocco. He moved to um, Babylon, from there to Spain. Spain was a center of Jewish poetry and learning. In Spain, he was forced to leave very quickly. We're not exactly sure why. Uh, and his wife writes a beautiful poem to him from Spain to where he is in Egypt. And here is the poem. Will her love remember his graceful doe, her only son in her arms as he parted? On her left hand, he placed a ring from his right. On his wrist, she placed her bracelet. As a keepsake, she took his mantle from him, and he in turn took hers from her. Would he settle now in the land of Spain if its prince gave him half his kingdom? A beautiful poem and uh, found in the Cairo Gniza. He was in Cairo escaping the wrath of um, some political leader in Spain, very possibly a Jew. And uh, his wife left in Spain writes this beautiful poem to him. And that is found actually on the back of, a, uh, on the back of another poem, which is written by him to her. So that is one of the only examples we have of medieval poetry written by a woman. Here is a copy of a letter from Chazdai, to Chazdai ibn Shafrud. He was a Jewish diplomat who worked for the Muslim regime in southern Spain. As a diplomat, he spoke many languages. He was comfortable in many countries. And he was also a major leader of the Jewish people. Here is a letter to him from the Khazars. The Khazars were a Jewish kingdom, a kingdom rather, who in around the ninth century converted to Judaism. They lived on the shores of the Black Sea, um, what we call today Eastern Ukraine. They converted to Judaism. We have correspondence between them and the Jews of Spain. And here's a copy of a letter they sent to Chazdai ibn Shafrut. Now, one of the most common documents in the Cairo Gniza are prenuptial agreements. There's actually 400 prenuptial agreements in the Cairo Gniza. Why? My, my theory is women's status was not very good at the time. And one of the ways to even things out was a woman would insist on her husband writing a prenuptial agreement. So the two most common conditions that women wrote in these agreements were the husband can only go on a business trip with her permission. Business trips then were not two days in Vegas. They were six months in Europe or South Africa. It's, I mean, it was very rough. So she, she had to have permission. A second, uh, an obvious condition was no purchasing of slave girls, only male slaves. Now, in this particular prenup, obviously the person she was marrying that wanted to marry this woman was somewhat of a larrikin, hooligan. Uh, his name was Tuvia. And as you can see in the prenup, it says, I will not bring into my house licentious men, buffoons, frivolous jesters, and good for nothings. In other words, his friends. I will not enter the house of anyone who clings to licentiousness, corruption, and ugly deeds. I will not associate with them for food or drink or anything else. I'll not purchase for myself a slave girl as long as Faiza is with me. In other words, this guy wants to marry this woman. She says, okay, first of all, it's either me or your friends. You want me? Out with those friends. They're a pathetic bunch. And so in the prenuptial agreement, if he hangs out with his friends or they come to his house, 
he has major financial penalties to pay to his wife. So it's a fascinating study. There's actually a uh, professor at Tel Aviv University who's done a study on the 400 prenuptial agreements um, that are there. It's online, if anyone's interested, uh, by Amir Ashur. Um, now, in a lot of the agreements, interesting, the dates are fascinating. If you look at your ketuvah, you look at your marriage license, the marriage contract, Jewish marriage contract, it dates back to creation. However, Jews did not always date from creation. In fact, the Talmud says from the time of Alexander of Macedon, it was customary for Jews to date their documents from the beginning of his reign. Let's have a look at what it says here. You can probably read it. Rosh Chodesh Kislev, on the first day of the month of Kislev, in the year three, 1359, according to the count that we are accustomed to count here in Fostat. Fostat was the suburb where the Jews lived in Cairo. Um, Fostat, Egypt, on, Nile, on the Nile River. Now, if you do a calculation, that date makes no sense. 1359, for years from creation, was, was, for heaven's sakes, that was before Abraham was born. So obviously it's not from creation. They're obviously as religious Jews, not counting from the coming of Jesus, right? As people do now, right? Uh, so what are they counting from? If you make the calculation, they're counting from the beginning of the reign of Alexander. And it's fascinating to see that in Cairo, Geniza, there are many documents that date from the time of Alexander. Here is a ketuvah, also dated from the reign of Alexander, and something you can see, modern day marriage documents, we try to make them beautiful and decorative. And they did the same. Here you can see this is a very beautifully written um, marriage document because I guess people like it. There's a romantic aspect to it, even though it's a legal document, but people like to make it fancy. Here is a letter from Ramla in Israel to the Jews of Egypt, appealing for help and funds. There was an earthquake in Ramleh in Israel in 1048. And the Jews suffered terribly from this earthquake. He says there was a, there was a, um, there was a epidemic um, of disease because bodies couldn't be buried. There was no fresh water. He writes a terrible, terrible uh, conditions that the Jews were suffering. That earthquake also decimated the city of Tzfat in the north of Israel. There is actually a fault line running through Israel known as the Syrian African Rift Line. Uh, like the San Andreas fault of Israel. According to the United Nations, everything's the fault of Israel. But this really is Israel's fault. And uh, it has caused many earthquakes throughout the past, according to some Jericho as well. Here is an 11th century ketuvah, which is interesting because it's a, a marriage between a rabbinite, meaning a person, a religious Jew, who believed in the oral tradition and the Talmud. And the woman was a Karite. Karites were a group, a large group of Jews in Cairo and other places who did not believe in the oral tradition and did not believe in the Talmud. And the Jews, the Rabbinites and the Karites had very radically different practices. So in the marriage contract, the Karites, for example, would not have hot food on Shabbat or light fire. Have it, they, would, they would sit in the dark and eat cold food. And there were certain foods they wouldn't eat and, and they had different calculations of the festivals. You can imagine this is a very complicated marriage, right? The husband is sitting in one room with the lights on on Shabbat, eating hot food. The wife's sitting in the dark, eating cold food. She's eating something which he holds is not kosher and vice versa. And they have to celebrate every festival on different days because they have different calculations. This, I don't, I haven't found the divorce document from this one, but I'm pretty sure it's probably there. Um, 
and here is uh, a we have a lot of Maimonides, who is one of the greatest Jewish scholars to have ever lived. Um, and he lived in Cairo in the 12th century. And this is a copy of his commentary on the Mishnah in his own handwriting with diagrams. Now, he wrote this in, he, it's called Judeo-Arabic. Judeo-Arabic means Arabic written in Hebrew letters, much like Yiddish is German written in Hebrew letters with lots of Hebrew thrown in. Ladino is Spanish written in Hebrew letters with lots of Hebrew thrown in. So the Jews, 80% of the Jews who lived in Arabic speaking lands at the time, they would write most of their writings in Judeo-Arabic. Some of the most famous works that you are, might, might have heard of in Judaism, like for example, uh, the works of Maimonides, Chovot Halvavot, Judies of the Heart, Rav Sa'ajagon, and others were written in Arabic in Hebrew letters. And Maimonides wrote that. And what he'd do is he would write his own copy. He didn't have very good handwriting. He was a doctor after all. And he would write this out and then it will be copied by other people for distribution. Here is a letter from Maimonides written to uh, a community called Minyat Zifta. This fellow, Isaac Aldari, was moving from Egypt to Israel. And he wanted a letter attesting to the fact that he was a Torah scholar, because if he was a Torah scholar, the community would pay his, the, the Muslims exacted what's called jizya, which is a, a, an Arabic uh, word for a head tax that Jews and Christians had to pay. And so uh, uh, here Maimonides writes a beautiful letter of recommendation. It's in Arabic, but the last few lines are in Hebrew. You can probably see, can you read that? Shloma Yirbeh, may her peace increase. Ushloma Chaver, and the peace of my friend. Ubno and his son. Ushlom Bena, and the uh, and the, um, the, the peace of your son. Shaitzei Rachmana, may God save you. Moshe, that's Maimonides' signature there. Moshe ben Rav Maimon Zatzal, Moses, son of Maimon of blessed memory. His, father, his father's name was Maimon. So he writes Maimon of blessed memory after his father. And there is yours truly in Cambridge holding a copy of that letter. You can see that it's beautifully preserved. It's in a very special plastic. Um, it's not airtight because uh, it, airtight stuff causes it to disintegrate for some reason. So it is open to the air, but it's a beautifully preserved letter of Maimonides in his handwriting with his signature. Here is a copy of Maimonides' Mishneh Torah. That's his, his legal text. And that is written in Hebrew. And here, what's fantastic is we can see Maimonides' thought process. You can see things he crossed out. You can see what he rewrote. You can see his little notes on the side, things he reconsidered. He, he changed the order of things. He was even careful about, for example, the title. Here you can see his original title. It said, Hilchot Nezikim, the laws of damages. He crossed out Nezikim and wrote Hilchot Nizkei Mamon, the laws of damage by property. So he was careful, even the titles were carefully thought out by Maimonides. And it's just wonderful to be able to see his thought process and to actually see, and here you can see his handwriting in very beautiful Hebrew, um, describing the fact that a person who owns an animal which causes damage to another, he must pay the, uh, the damage, the something crossed out, which again is not in ours. And here, a librarian who really should deserve the capital P 
punishment if they ever reintroduce it in England, put a stamp right smack bang in the middle of Maimonides' manuscript. Um, so uh, if they ever introduce the firing squad back to England, this person should get it, although probably dead by now. But in any case, um, here is something from the Guide for the Perplexed, Maimonides' uh, Book of Philosophy, which is written in Judeo-Arabic, but you can see the occasional quote of a sentence in Hebrew. Vayishkon kevod Hashem al-Har Sinai, the honor of God rested on Mount Sinai. Maimonides in his um, Guide for the Perplexed, section 164, explains this. You can see, you see that little three dots there? That's his abbreviation for God's name. It's really three yuds. Yud, yud, and a little dot on top. Why? Because the way God's name is written is yud, hey, and vav, hey. So the first letter is yud. But we pronounce it Adonai where the last letter is yud. So we take the first letter of the way it's written, the last letter of the way it's pronounced, and that becomes the abbreviation for God's name. And one of the earliest places we see that abbreviation is in the writings of Maimonides. Here is something which I felt was one of the most beautiful things to see, Maimonides' doodle. You see that? He was writing his manuscript to the Guide for the Perplexed, and he doodles. Now, someone told me, one of the curators there said, he believes it was, to, you see the ink seems to be running low in his pen. He must have re-dipped it and then just done a little squiggle to get the ink flowing and then to continue writing. So when he told me that theory, I immediately, I'm skeptical about any theory anyone ever says, it doesn't matter who they are. So I bought a Arabic calligraphy kit from Amazon um, with traditional ink. I did some research um, and uh, found from a professor at Sorbonne, she is the world's leading she is the world's leading expert in medieval manuscripts. I figured out what the type of pen he would have used. And I found that it only holds enough ink for approximately two or three letters, which means that theory could not be true. Because once you put the ink, put, dip it in the ink and write and do the doodle, you have to dip it in again anyway. So it can't be to get the ink to run. So what is my theory? Maimonides was doodling like we all do when we are thinking right? Because Maimonides was a human being. He made mistakes. He crossed out things. He rewrote things. And he was thinking. And sometimes when you think, you do a doodle. In fact, there is a lot of psychological research to say that doodles are extremely helpful for the process of thinking. As we will see later on, process of learning. Here is a letter in which someone visited Maimonides. Um, he was a messenger of a court. He's bringing a document for Maimonides to sign. And Maimonides brought him into the house, explained him what the document was, even though the guy didn't really understand, but Maimonides wanted to make him feel good, not just like a messenger, but like a participant. And Maimonides had his son, Avraham, play with this guy's son. And he says he felt like so good. And he writes about Maimonides' hospitality and he brings um, uh, lemon cake. So there's two, we now have three uh, input, this is very important historically because now there are three things in common between Mordechai Becher and Maimonides. A, I doodle, as did Maimonides. B, I like lemon cakes, as did Maimonides. And three, I occasionally cross things out, as did. So there you go. It's unbelievable. It's worth it for this class just to know that. Right. Okay. Now, here's a mezuzah, which some people who are superstitious um, did not just fulfill the mitzvah of mezuzah, but they would write names of angels on the side of the mezuzah. 
Maimonides says these people are fools, idiots. He says the mezuzah is not some lucky charm. It's a mitzvah to write the important principles of Jewish faith on our home. And so this actually mezuzah, which obviously is a type of mezuzah that Maimonides was criticizing, was actually found in the Geniza. Here is a very sad find. It is the letter, oops, written, the last letter written by, by Maimonides' brother David to Maimonides before he died. His brother David was a merchant and he supported Maimonides for much of his life um, and uh, helped Maimonides write his books. One of the reasons, by the way, Maimonides' greatest work is 14 volumes. It's called Yad HaChazaka. There's a theory that one of the reasons for that is that, that 14 is the numerical value of David, David, the name of his brother. So a tribute to his brother for supporting him while writing these. His brother went on a journey. He was on his way to India. He took a, he walked from Cairo uh, well, they camels from Cairo to Aydab, in, which is in, currently in Sudan. He got on a ship there and the ship went down somewhere in the Gulf of Aden. And uh, he drowned, lost all his money. Maimonides now had to take on the job of, t of supporting himself and his brother's family. And so that's when he became a physician, a doctor to the uh, vizier of Egypt known as Salah al-Din, Saladin, um, and uh, he became now famous as a, as a physician. But Maimonides writes that the greatest misfortune of his entire life was the death of his brother. He considered his brother not only a, uh, a close friend, but also a teacher and also a, um, a mentor and someone who he greatly respected. In fact, Maimonides writes in another letter that he could barely get out of bed for a year afterwards. He was so depressed. And every time he'd see something, in his brother's handwriting, he would burst into tears when he'd see it. This is the last letter to my beloved, and a lot of it was missing, to my beloved brother, Rabbi Moses, son of Rabbi Maimon, David, your brother who is longing for you, may God unite me with you under the most happy circumstances in his grace. I'm writing this letter from Adab. I am well, but my mind is troubled. I walk around the bazaar. I do not know where I am, how I came. We traveled alone out of fear of him, no one ever dared to embark. He, he must have had a horrific journey in the desert itself. They were robbed. They almost died of, um, they almost died of, of thirst. And he says, but don't worry. He who saved us will save me at sea. Calm the heart of the little one. That's a, 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 for his wife and her sister, meaning her sister-in-law, Maimonides' wife. Don't frighten them. Let them not despair. And that's all we have of the letter. Here is something written by Maimonides' son, Avraham who himself was a great scholar, but went in a different path from his father. His father was very much a rationalist. Avraham, son of Maimonides, a great Torah scholar, but was much more of a mystic. Uh, and uh, very, very fascinating to see the differences between them. And here is the oldest piece of Jewish music, well, other than the reading of the Torah, this is one of the oldest pieces of Jewish music we have. This was written by a fellow by the name of Giovanni, who converted to Judaism, took on the name of Vajja. Uh, he was in Italy. He moved from Italy to Aleppo, then Baghdad, then Cairo. And he composed a beautiful song called Who Stood Upon Mount Choreb? That's another name for Sinai, all about Moses. And what is really nice is that in the Cairo Geniza was found his original handwriting with musical notes. So we can actually reconstruct the music, which I hope you can hear. This is the music that was written 
by a convert to Judaism played by Jews in Cairo a thousand years ago. Can you hear it? You cannot hear the music? Aha. One second. You hear it now? Okay, you probably can't hear it too well, but it is, it is pretty cool to uh, hear. I don't know if anyone heard it, but okay. Here is the oldest Yiddish letter ever found, also about 800 years old. And as you can expect, it's from a woman in Europe whose son, her name is Rachel, whose son went to Cairo on business. And the gist of the letter is, why didn't you write to me? So we have one of the oldest Yiddish letters ever with also a Yiddish guilt trip in the letter found of all places in the Cairo Gemisa. Here is a letter from one of our greatest poets, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi lived in Spain. He was like a rock star in Spain. He was the greatest poet in Spain. He was one of the great rabbis of Spain. He was a political leader. He was a doctor. He was, and he decided towards the end of his life to leave it all behind and go to Israel. And on the way to Israel, he spent, it was about a year. He was in Cairo uh, for a while. And he wrote a letter to a good friend of his, Chalfon ben Netanel Halevi, and, uh, who was a student of his colleague, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Migash. In fact, this letter, Yehud Halevi made a halachic ruling, and he's not sure if he was right. So he asks his friend to ask Rabbi Yosef Ibn Migash to confirm the ruling. So it's fascinating. Here he was, a great poet and rabbi, but he was not sure of his ruling. He wanted to confirm it with a greater authority. Okay, so, um, so that's, that's the letter from Yuda Halevi. And um, that's the address. How it got to where it was supposed to go, I have no idea. Uh, because the address is just the person's name. And, and it says Fostat, the city in which he lived. So I'm not sure exactly how letters got there. Here is the oldest kosher certification. I know when you look for food, you look for an OU or an OK or a Chafk or Star K, one of the many Kashrut certifications. This is a Kashrut certification from a cheese store in Cairo from approximately eight or 900 years ago. The store was owned by Karaites and the rabbis wanted to ensure that the Karaites would conform to Jewish law. So all Jews could buy from this store. And what they did was they made the Karaites take an oath on a Torah scroll and handshake to ensure that they'd follow. And it's signed by three rabbis from, of the Cairo Jewish court. So you can imagine, nothing has changed. You go to a store somewhere and you'll be looking for the Kashrut certification signed by Rabbi Nitzan and Berkowitz, etc. Right? However, if you were a Jew in Cairo 800 years ago, you'd do the same thing. You'd walk into the cheese store, you know, you want some, a little bit of the fermented curd and you'd be looking, you want to make sure they don't have the Venezuelan beaver cheese, which is not kosher. You want to make sure they have the Greek feta goat cheese, which is kosher. And so you have to ensure that. So you look on the wall and there is a letter of certification from rabbis of Cairo. And nothing else has changed. Here is one of the old Kaddish, one of the oldest versions of Kaddish. And here, two things stand out. Number one, 
it's uh, close to the Sfarad tradition of Kaddish, uh, not Ashkenaz. As you can imagine, it's in Cairo, so it's not going to be Ashkenaz. But also they included the names of their rabbis in Kaddish, the living rabbis. Kaddish says, of in your days and in your life, may God look upon us and so on and so forth. So they would add in your days and in our days and in the life of our rabbi, Gaon Yaakov, Rabbeinu Shlomo HaKohen, Av HaYeshiva, and they'd list all the great rabbis of their community in Kaddish, right? Which uh, I, I would hope they said less Kaddishes than we do. This is the oldest Haggadah in the world. This is again from Cairo, beautifully written. And again, it's got explanations and translation in Judeo-Arabic, which is Arabic written in Hebrew. And then it's got the actual text in Hebrew. There are some differences between their Haggadah and ours. One difference is they'd say a blessing. Blessed are you, our God, King of the universe. You did miracles for our fathers in these days. We, when I say we, most Jews today only say that blessing on Hanukkah and Purim. But evidently, some Jews in Cairo would say this also on Pesach. And here they have the five questions. I know you're all looking at me. What, five? Yes, five questions. They had five questions in the Manishtana. Because one of the questions they'd ask is, on all other nights, we would eat roasted meat, boiled meat, and cooked meat. On this night, in the days of the temple, we would only eat roasted meat, the meat of the Passover offering. So they had actually four questions, five questions in the Manishtana in their Haggadah. And here is Birkat Amazon, Grace After Meals, a little uh, thing that you bring to the table to say Birkat Amazon, benching. Here is a letter from the Khazars describing their conversion to Judaism. For the so that was the AT&T lady from last week. And here is, sorry. And here is a letter. Uh from the Jewish community of Kiev um, to the Jews of Cairo. And it's interesting, the, it is written, there are 11 people who sign it. And one of the people who signs it is actually a Khazar and he's written in the Khazar language known as Turkic. I have read this, which is Hakeum, I have read this. Here is, I think, the most endearing find in the Cairo These are workbooks in which they teach children the Aleph Beit. So here are Jewish children in Cairo, approximately a thousand years ago, learning Aleph Beit and the Nekudot, Aleph Beit and the vowels, just like our children learn today. And you can see they made an effort to make the books beautiful and to illustrate them and to make them colorful. And what's even cooler is we have the actual books. We have the workbooks that the children themselves wrote. So this is what children, Jewish children were writing 900 and 800 years ago in Cairo when they were learning Aleph Beit in school. Here you can see one of the children has doodled, right? He's got Aleph Beit written there. Not, he's not a good, he's not very good at his writing, but you can see he's got what he's doodled here is he's got a camel. Sorry. He's got a camel with a rider on the camel and stirrups, triangular stirrups. So what do you expect a Jewish kid in Cairo? He's looking at, he's daydreaming during class. He looks out the window and he doodles a camel and he doodles some menorah shapes. Then he does some random, random shapes. All right. A little kid, normal little kid, 800 years ago is doodling in class. And here is a kid who's obviously a nerdy kid. 
everything is perfect. He's going to get beaten up at recess for sure, right? Uh, here, everything is beautifully written with all the vowels. And this is the kids were practicing handwriting. And here is another child who this kid is, is really good because this kid has drawn a Nile River boat. I actually checked it out in the, uh, in the famous world bestseller, Medieval Boats of the Nile, um, Oxford University Press. And this actually is a really excellent depiction of a Nile boat from that time. The kid has really done a good job. And there you can see on the side is the sun. That's how they may have depicted the sun. And here he's written, you know, he's done a little bit of his work. He's got Menatzbeich, the the, the, the Sophie letters, and he's got here Aleph with all the vowels. But this kid, you know, he's more interested in the boats on the Nile than he is in Aleph Beit. Here you've got, you may have heard of Rabbi Yosef Karo. He was the author of the Code of Jewish Law, who lived in Tzfat in the north of Israel, but he did business. And the Jews of Tzfat, the great rabbis, the Kabbalists, were all business people as well. They were involved in the textile trade because Tzfat in the Ottoman Empire was one of the centers of the textile trade. So a lot of the rabbis who moved there, moved there because you can make a living. And here is a letter from Yosef Karo. I don't think it was written in his handwriting. This looks like it was done professionally by a scribe and written to a Jew in Cairo demanding payment for a business debt. And here, but he signed it at the end, Yosef Karo. That's his signature, even though the handwriting is probably not his but there is Yosef Kara, author of the Code of Jewish Law. That's his signature. Here's the full view of the letter, as you can see, beautifully preserved on a very large piece of paper. And another person involved in business who lived in Cairo was Rob Isaac Luria, known as the Arizal. The Arizal was the greatest Kabbalist who probably ever lived. And the Arizal, uh, his, when his father died, his, he and his mother moved from Israel to Cairo. He was taken under the wings of an uncle, a wealthy uncle in Cairo for whom he worked. And uh, during that time, his uncle owned an island in the Nile Delta region. And Arizal, Rabbi Zakluri, used to go to the island and meditate on the Zohar. And there he came up with probably the most complex system of thought known to mankind, the Arizal's understanding of the Zohar. And, um, but this is not Kabbalistic. This is a business letter from the Arizal uh, Isaac Luria written to someone and again signed by him as you can see a signature a cool signature as you might expect from Rabbi Yosef from Rav, uh, Arizal but that is a letter written by Rav Isaac Luria one of the greatest Kabbalists who ever lived what else is there you know what where are all these stuff so in Cambridge University they have something like 200,000 and by the way I should point out they're still going through them we have not finished investigating the entire Geniza. In Cambridge University alone, there are 200,000 fragments. In the JTS, Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, there are 30,000 fragments. In Oxford University, 25,000. So there's probably a close to 300,000 fragments all around the world. And uh, university, Yeshiva University, where I teach, we have one. Uh, so what can I say? But anyway, but there is still research being done on this. There is still uh, more to be found. Just to give you an idea of what's still there, 50 unpublished responsa by Abraham, son of Maimonides, students' notes of Maimonides' lectures on Talmud and philosophy. Students wrote notes in Arabic, a student knows the Rimigash, a lot of other beautiful stuff. It's an amazing, of course, this is not in the Cairo Gneza, but that is my book. Um, 
but that is a little bit of a review of the amazing contents of the Kairagniza. We don't really know everything that's there. There's still more stuff. They have found a lot of stuff has been published. In fact, the current commentary of Maimonides on the Mishnah that we have, most of it, at least if you have the Kafach edition by Masarav Cook, most of it is based on handwritten manuscripts by Maimonides in his own handwriting. We have poems published by Rabbi Yudah Levi. There's a fantastic book. Highly recommended. If, into, if you're into poetry, you can't see it. Okay, it's called The Dream of the Poem. We'll get rid of my background here, one second. Um, let's get you, a, get you a more normal background. Okay, oops, sorry, no. Uh, oh, there we go. Okay, yes, The Dream of the Poem, uh, uh, and it's phenomenal. It's got hundreds and hundreds of poems by medieval Jewish rabbis, most rabbis are Jewish, but medieval rabbis, uh, and a, a lot of them actually came from the Cairo uh, Geniza, and we have a, it's a treasure trove of stuff. There are some excellent books about this, one's called Sacred Trash, great title, because uh, it's trash, but it's sacred. And there's still more stuff to be found. There's research going on in the Taylor Schechter Geniza Research Unit. Uh, a lot of this stuff, by the way, if anyone's interested, you can get, if you uh, Google um, the uh, Schechter, Taylor Schechter Geniza Research Unit, or you Google the, um, the Cairo Geniza, there's stuff online. There's a Jew in uh, Toronto um, who has financed uh, uh, putting most of the stuff online. Most colleges have agreed to do that, except for the ones in Russia. Uh, but everyone else is okay with it. Um, and uh, there's a lot of the stuff online. It's amazing to be able to see, uh, to see children from a thousand years ago doodling in class, right, who I'm sure their teacher was upset, even though he shouldn't have been, right, to see things written in the handwriting of Maimonides, to see a poem from a woman to her husband. They have to leave each other for some emergency reason, to see prenuptial agreements and all this stuff and a, a kosher certification of a cheese store in Cairo. It's, uh, to me, it's absolutely amazing. And there's not a lot that has changed. They even found a teacher who wrote a note to a parent about how his son was misbehaving in class. Right? So, you know what, it's uh, so little has changed uh, that it's incredible. A lot has changed, obviously, but there is so much we have in common with our ancestors in Cairo. It's beautiful to see. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you for joining in this. Thank you, Rabbi Nitzen, uh, my good friend. We studied together. He probably won't admit it, but we, we did. Um, and uh, uh, it's uh, great to see everyone and uh, stay safe and stay sane. I'll be happy to, uh, I guess, if there's anyone has a question or anything like that or a comment or political statement or you know, protest. If I, if I could just, before the questions, if I could just say one thing I, I neglected in my introduction to introduce Rabbi Becher appropriately, I hope that you got a chance to see his um, uh, bio. Obviously, you, as you can tell, he's from Australia originally, and he's a Rebbe in Yeshiva, in our, in the Yeshiva University. He teaches in Nevei Yerushalayim, um, or he's a Rebbe of the alumni of Yerushalayim. He has smicha from the rabbinate in Eretz Yisrael and from the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. You go on and on. The bio is unending and it's still yeah, coming. Go on, go on. And, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
um, but he, he answers. He's, a, he's the famous answer of the, the uh, he's the famous rabbi behind the AskTheRabbi.org. And he speaks on television and on radio shows and is a prolific author, as you saw, from the Gateway to Judaism. And um, with that, thank you, Rabbi Becher. See the bio and the questions are now available. Yeah. Thank you, Rabbi Berkowitz. Thank you very much. Any questions for Rabbi Becher? Yes, please. There was, a, you held up a, a book. Hello? Yeah. You held, up a, you held up a book in your left hand moments ago. I didn't notice whether it was in English. A large whether book. Whether it was. I beg your pardon? Whether it was in, available in English. Yes, it is. The book is actually in English. It's an English translation of all the poems. It's called The Dream of the Poem, and the author is Peter Cole, C-O-L-E. Are there any commentaries to explain the language? Yes. He extensively, he has um, comments on them, footnotes, and there's also a website um, run by, by uh, Princeton University uh, with the original Hebrew poems, but it's in English with his, um, his uh, footnotes, etc. Excellent, it's excellent, really beautiful stuff. One Thank of my you. favorite poems, apropos of Rabbi Nitzim, when I got on the camera and he commented on my hair, one of my favorite poems was Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, the great Jewish rabbi, author of philosopher, etc. He has a poem, he says, he says, I, he says I, was, I was brushing my hair and I found a white hair. I plucked it out and the hair said to me, you've defeated me one-on-one. -on -one. What will you do when I come back with my friends? <laughs> Is my monodies... Pardon me, Rabbi, is, is Maimonides' uh, parish on Pirkei Avos available in English? Yes, Maimonides' commentary on, on Pirkei Avos is available in English. I do not remember the publishing house, but it is available. Um, yeah. Thank you, Rabbi. And um, yeah, a, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, but a lot of the Cairo Gniza, they're, they're publishing it all the time. There are academic journals that publish it. There are, Mossad Haraf Cook has published numerous books from there, but the, the greatest treasure trove really is, are the works of Maimonides, Yehuda Halevi, and of course, uh, some of the other uh, uh, great rabbis from there. Um, yeah. Uh, someone else? I, I, can't, I can't hear someone's, I think, asking a question, but I cannot hear. No. Okay. Okay, I can't, I can't, but all right, we'll say goodbye. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Rabbi Nitzen, thank you so very, very much for inviting me. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Thank you. It's fabulous. 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 Thank you very much. Bye. See you, Rabbi Nitzan. Bye-bye. That you, Linda? <laughs> That's me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Rabbi Nitzan. Thank you. You guys sure swung for the fences on this one. Keep it up. I mean, I don't... This is wonderful. When I grew up, there was no programming. I'm unaware that there was any programming in all of St. Louis, let alone of such quality. Really, I don't, I don't, 
Hey, I'm signing out. How do you sign out of this thing? You put a 